You're here with Claudia Hertzenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commission for the SGPS, and we're going to speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. In episode eight, I once again go to an international research seminar. This time, the research seminar is on Turkey and brings together three scholars from different research fields, political studies, geography, and sociology. First up, we have Jana Sahin from political studies, who looks at Syrian refugees as surplus population in Turkish labor market, racialization, segmentation, and exploitation. Next is Hilal Kara from geography, who considers navigating precarious environments in Turkey, being young in the times of chronic crisis. And finally, we hear from Gaia Anuru from Sociology. She discusses academics for peace, advocacy for peace in Turkey. So on that note, I'm going to let them take it away. Uh, The structure of how this works is each of them will speak for about 10 minutes. They're doing quite distinct research from one another, and they're also from different departments. So they'll explain their own research for about 10 minutes. Then the three of them will engage in something of a panel discussion with just, just the three of them. And then thereafter, hey Barris, and then thereafter it'll open up and we can kind of just have a conversation. Um, and the aim of this is um, we are not trying to do anything in the way of offense or to hurt anyone. Um, it's purely to shed and share ideas. So please, if we could participate in that spirit of sharing ideas as graduate students and challenging each other, um, and, and yeah, I think that makes sense. <laughs> okay, so on that note, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves and uh, take it away. And I will give you a five minute more, like a five minute when you're running. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Perfect. Shall I start? Yes, yeah. Jana. Okay, so my name is Jana Shahin. Um, uh, I am a PhD student in the political studies department um, in my second year. So I did my comprehensive exams previous semester, and this semester I am trying to draft a proposal actually to defend it so that in summer and maybe next semester I can do field work. Uh, so my research interests is uh, on refugee issues and particularly in relation to class. So. Um, I am planning to look at <coughs> Turkey because Turkey, according to UNHCR, is the country that hosts the largest number of refugees today in the world. So we have almost 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey, in addition to some refugees from Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and some other countries. So I am interested in actually looking at how that kind of reshapes the class composition and what political implications you know, that actually influx of labor into Turkish labor market entails. So basically, that's it. But in addition to that, maybe I want to thank Claudia uh, because our kind of uh, history of working together uh, started when we were campaigning for international students' concern issues at Queen's. So we are both, you know, kind of activists that demand the university reduce international tuition fees to domestic levels because we you know it's a painful thing, especially when you extend beyond your timely comp- period of completion. So we have a history of, you know, I think like working together. 
and now she's doing an awesome job, like creating some space for people who do research in different parts of the world. Uh, so thanks for having us today. Well, hello everyone, I'm Hilal. I'm a uh, third year PhD in Geography and Planning Department. Uh, and I want to thank you all for being us and thank you Claudia organizing this amazing seminar seminar series. Thank you. Uh, what am I going to present today? I'm going to looking at my research interest, particularly looking at the young people and their labor experiences. But in broader sense, I'm interested in the social reproductive work, non-work, and how young people navigate this work-life balances, and particularly in Turkey, precarious environments. And in my presentation, I'm going to talk about what I understand why precarious environments, and what I understand precarious life, precarious labor, in the times of chronic crisis, you are going to see my presentation, and thank you. Okay, <clears throat> hello, my name is Gaye, Gaye Onrar. I am uh, from the Department of Sociology. Uh, my research interests uh, usually uh, rest in uh, political sociology. Today I'm going to uh, talk about my research uh, project, uh, which is on academics for peace. Uh, a group of Turkish scholars uh, who were criminalized and marginalized by the, Tur by the Turkish government uh, for a peace petition they penned and publicized in uh, January 2016. Uh, and thank you, Claudia, for organizing this series. <laughs> thank you. Okay. And thank you all for coming. You're welcome. Yeah, so I can take the lead. Uh, right, so um, I don't have PowerPoint, so I kind of want to share my rough ideas, you know, like with you, what my central questions are, and I would be like grateful if you could give me further ideas and ask questions later. So today, before this event was organized, there was actually another event taking place here. It was mm, an event uh, um, where we had the High Commissioner of India to Canada here talking about, you know, business relations between Canada and India. He get given a talk in Simit's Business School. Why am I am saying that? In the that meeting, some Indian students actually uh, protested the uh, visit of High Commissioner, and the reason was for was 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 basically the new Citizenship Amendment Act that took place in India, which grants citizenship uh, based on religious, you know, like the persecution in three Muslim countries, but not granting the same citizenship right to the people of Islamic faith. So the issue of refugees, migrants, is a global issue. And uh, in that very protest, I was lucky that I was here and I kind of joined their anger. Uh, but it made me think of, of the Turkish context as well, right? So we have, as I told you before, um, official figures say, you know, like 3,600,000, but we know that it is almost for and a half million people in Turkey. Most of them are concentrated in the sectors like construction, textile, some of them do home care work, uh, some of them, uh, you know, like most of them work in small workshops in informal economy. And although the government granted, you know, like a work permit in 2016, only 1.5% of the Syrian refugees hold work permit, which means majority of them actually are employed in informal economy. Uh, and uh, in Turkey, unfortunately, anti-refugee sentiment and politics is uh, across, po across the political, you know, like traditions. That, uh, by by uh, which I mean 
the major opposition party, CHP, the Republican Party in Turkey, has a kind of anti-refugee line. And in the during municipal elections or general elections, it is very much pronounced in the electoral campaigns. And we have the governing party, AKP, who kind of opened the border when the civil war started in 2011 in Syria, but then increasingly securitized its borders, and now we have a we have the longest wall actually built between two countries, between Turkey and Syria, now increasingly refusing to take in more refugees and trying to use an anti-refugee politics in its electoral program so that it can compete with the other parties. So anti-refugee politics actually is the politics that characterizes the political space with all traditions in Turkey, and which is very dangerous because uh, it also divides the oppressed, you know, like along certain lines. So it is very difficult for those who oppose neoliberalism, who oppose capitalism, to bring the oppressed together. That's why labor market and the segmentation matters, you know, like to us. So the reason why I am interested in this project is not for the uh, it, uh, for the questions of economics, you know, like profitability, efficiency, or productivity, or what kind of contribution it gives to Turkish economy. I'm not interested in that aspect, although I will have to address some of them. My major concern is how division of the labor in this regard impacts the class composition in general and impacts the politics of actually uh, uh, intra-class antagonism in Turkish space. And uh, uh, it is not only a Turkish-related issue, because I started with India, this high political salience of the issues paralleled by the growing significance of immigration in modern labor markets. So we have uh, the same, you know, like debates happening in Germany. And although I haven't included here, I will be doing a comparative research, looking at German labor market and Turkish labor market. But today, primarily, I will be talking about the Turkish one. So refugee issues at the forefront of political and economic uh, debates. Uh, so uh, in Turkey, we sometimes see, you know, like uh, direct, you know, like accusations of refugees for certain, you know, like criminal incidents. Sometimes we have mass mobilization attacking refugees in certain neighborhoods. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, like workplace related accidents which cause, uh, which, which, have, which have fatal consequences, you know. It was last month when the, when a workshop, you know, like got burnt down and a lot of, all of the workers working there were refugees and they were all killed, but we do not have a really a strong uh, opposition, you know, that can make the government accountable for that. This is one of the uh, problems. And when we look at the European Union and their policies, we see in 2016 they struck a deal with Turkey, Turkey which is called as EU-Turkish refugee deal. And according to that deal, actually, Turkey closed the borders. And if there are uh, transitions from Turkey into Europe, the, according to the agreement, they will be actually uh, sent back to Turkey in exchange of a skilled, you know, like labor, which means European Union tries to externalize, you know, and securitize its uh, immigration policy. Uh, so Turkey, is, Turkey has become a pool of, you know, like cheap labor, insecure labor, people with, you know, no refugee or citizenship rights, but exploited, you know, on a daily basis and uh, exposed to discrimination in their daily lives. And labor market uh, seems to be the central site of these debates. 
And this happens against the background of, of course, crisis of neoliberalism, and it's a structural crisis. We see in 2008, when the financial depression crisis happened in the US, it had repercussions in the European Union. And Turkish economy back then was so showing signals of growth uh, compared to developed economies. But now we see, even in the developing circle, the economy is in crisis. So when the economy is globally stagnant, it is in crisis. Uh, the issue of immigration, forced immigration, and their you know, integration into labor market becomes a very political question, um, as you might have uh, imagined. So uh, we have like two tendencies. On the one hand, refugees are seen as threat to international order in general, labor market regulation, cultural homogeneity, social stability, uh, welfare provision, services, infrastructure, personal security, which means more border policing, more restrictive policies, and which are legitimized usually on those grounds. But on the other hand, we know that neoliberal policies demand cheap, flexible, compliant labor. In, uh, for the Syrian uh, workers in Turkey, they cannot negotiate their wages easily. Usually they work, you know, like one third of the salaries that the Turkish workers get. And it's not easy for them to organize or negotiate that. They work in flexible terms most of the time. It is just the uh, employers, you know, um, <laughs> Um, uh, like in, it is discreet to uh, sack you know or fire a worker in a workplace yes so uh, irregular migrants or forced migrants usually meet this demand in the most efficient way uh, they are usually impervious to wage and uh, condition regulations they are highly mobile they are easily expendable and deportable according to market fluctuation Right, so we have these two uh, tendencies. So my, when I was interested in this issue, of course I looked at the literature, you know, like written on uh, refugees and labor market. There are two major tendencies that I have uh, identified. One of them basically looks at labor market integration. It looks at the policies, you know, like what kind of skill training, vocational training is provided, so how they can be integrated further. The other trend is mostly institutionalist, so they kind of look at the different institutional arrangements uh, in different contexts. Like Germany, for example, is, a, uh, is an economy which is highly welfareist and regulated, so uh, the labor market consequences of refugee influx differs based on that institutional configuration from Turkey, which we kind of see a more irregular, less regulated, violently neoliberal, you know, like political economy. But the problem that I have observed in both, you know, like uh, strands in literature is that they do not actually look at overall structural transformations happening in global capitalism and the crisis condition. Because institutionalists kind of perceive the institutional configuration as static, as if they are always there. However, I spent my summer in Germany kind of to prepare the proposal and to observe what kind of, you know, uh, on the ground labor segmentation is happening. Uh, the informality is on the rise. Unemployment is on the rise. Although there is language training, vocational skills uh, training and everything, you can see ghettoization of refugees and, you know, their, you know, like involvement in economy through informal means. But institutionalist literature cannot actually account for that kind of trend uh, there. 
So weirdly, two different economies may display similar features in times of crisis, which is, I think, something we should be looking into a bit more rigorously, I would say. And so I will try to actually uh, try to um, capture the, this dialectics between the, the change in this labor market, the overarching trends, and the political, you know, consequences <laughs> of this. Um, uh, right, and um, so uh, the, there are a lot of reports written by international labor organization, you know, written by United Nations, and you can see more, you know, like atomized descriptive reports and explanations, but they do not actually attempt to provide, let's say, macro-level explanations that can connect micro-level, you know, experiences to, onto, to a macro-level. That's why uh, my project is kind of uh, proposing to fill this uh, gap. And uh, the last maybe point before I kind of close up, I know we, I, I have two minutes, right, okay. So is the issue of actually racialization, because racialization is a concept that is uh, very frequently used in Western context, right? I mean, we have people of color, we have uh, migrants coming from, uh, let's say, uh, post-colonial countries. We have, of course, refugees coming from Middle East into Europe or North America. And so racialization is considered something that is happening in Western Hemisphere only. But actually in Turkey, although we have migrants from an Islamic, uh, I mean, mostly uh, populated by Muslim people, we also see racialization of refugees. They are called as Syrians, actually, right? Syrians taking our jobs. Syrians, you know, like uh, using our welfare services. Syrians making the health sector worse. Syrians uh, making our schools worse. So that kind of racialization is happening there. And this racialization, according to the framework that I have, which is epistemologically can be considered historical materialism and uh, uh, maybe critical realism, uh, actually can be understood uh, with the framework of surplus populations in the labor market. Because even in the early stages of capitalism, we had surplus populations, which were usually used to reduce the wages, you know, like and the working conditions of the um, relatively more stable, you know, like workforce. They came in and got out of the workforce more easily. They were more dispensable, but it is kind of a structural uh, quality of capitalism, which becomes even more pronounced or important in the times of uh, mobility and crisis, I would say. So these polarizations of populations, creating internal colonies in the workforce, flexible labor markets, and this rationally hierarchized labor regime, you know, like in, in, in the spaces, and a more commodified form of labor are the things that I want to uh, observe, and of course I want to come up with some maybe uh, terms and phrases that can capture the transformation happening in Turkey beyond the ones that I am listing uh, here. So uh, in the history of the uh, labor segmentation theory, the major was one dualization. So we have a central workforce and we have the periphery of the workers, usually consisting of, you know, like less secure, more flexible and migrant workers. 
but I believe today dualization cannot capture the diversity in the workplace. So I also want to go beyond that framework. You know, what's happening? How can we understand the labor market beyond dualization? You know, what further uh, divisions are happening? And lastly, I would say, I say, as uh, I said, like there are two understandings and there are two tendencies in the laboring classes. One is, you know, like laboring classes are fragmented ideologically. They are pit against each other, you know, so they are, it's not easy to form. And this creates a intra-class antagonism, which means that, you know, working class actually fights against each other ideologically. They support political projects, you know, against each other. This is one of the mechanisms. And, um, uh, the second one is actually there are new bases for mobilization. It's not always negative. And in some places we see in Izmir, for example, we saw emergence of uh, joint strikes, you know, like with the refugees and the host workers. So there are two tendencies. So, uh, so I want to, um, because I think uh, improvement of labor conditions and, and a more, you know, like, um, let's say, um, a stronger politics of class can only happen if this mass mobilization opportunities can be used, right? So I want to look at how the division works and how the uh, tendency towards integration works. And uh, if I can, of course, identify the latter, uh, this can also help uh, the, in the respective countries that I'm going to look at uh, to kind of shape the trade union or uh, the political, you know, like activism happening there. Yeah, thank you. So, this is my turn. Uh, as I said before, I'm going to talk about the young people and how young people navigate the precarious environment. Uh, what drives this research? What is the behind? What is the motive of my research? Uh, last year, there was an article uh, published in Guardian, and the author simply asked this question, why young people are angry? And considering the big protests happening across the globe, in Lebanon, Chile, and Hong Kong, and in this article, he simply asked why young people are angry. And from my observation, and the, this article also concluded that, Young people angry because they are resisting social inequality, poverty, ecological destruction, and they are resistant against economic, they are demanding social and economic justice. And so, uh, many non-scholarly and scholarly work, they are trying to understand why uh, young, uh, what, what creates this precarious environment, and what I understand this precarious environment, this, this is intersection of precarity in labor market, and also precariousness of life, political stable instability and social instability. And according to many scholars, what creates this precarious environment, particularly in the aftermath on the uh, 2000 recession, the persistent unemployment plus underemployment, which means expanding forms of precarious employment, which is working without work security, wage security, and workplace security and any kind of in the erosion of the immunization activities. In addition, the persistent unemployment and underemployment, the withdrawal of state in social provisioning services linked to neoliberal policies. Uh, after 1970s, along with the neoliberal policies, the state is no longer providing any social pro provisioning. <laughs> Uh, such as education and health, and all privatization policies started along with neoliberal policies. And of course, it uh, increases the 
burden of the household and the burden of the um, particularly disfranchised segment in the society and all of the impoverished segments in the society. And this creates the persistent unemployment, under underemployment, and the withdrawal in the state, the social provisioning role. It creates a vicious circle of indebtedness through financialization process and working in precarious job or unemployment. And I argue that this vicious circle, indebtedness, and working, working in the precarious job creates a, uh, creates a kind of weighted for young people. My concern here in this precarious environment, young people, but particularly young females. Why? Because young females already exposed to precarious job, unpaid work in their household. But I'm also interested young females with university graduate because uh, they are dated, the young females with university graduate, dated whatever the system demands of them. The system, the economic organization said, if you go to university, get education, and after that, you get a stable job. They are supposed to be winners in the system. But right now, the system, the capital system, is not promising, producing any employment opportunity, even you are educated. But my argument by this research, weighthood experiences highly differentiated across the globe. Uh, and most works uh, looking at uh, the precarious environments mostly centered around the global north experience and western Europe experience. And the, all those discussions started with the global recession 2008. But I argue that many parts of in the world, young people long exposed to political instability. And they are already working in the informal job. But all discussions started after 2008 global recession Mostly looking at, okay, and the uh, Western Europe is also in the, this economic organization collapsing. But the, in many parts of the uh, in world, young people already stuck in weighted. Uh, my context, young females in neoliberal Turkey. I'm trying to frame uh, young females' experience in neoliberal Turkey. Why am I looking at Turkey? Because Turkey is a very interesting example. According to many scholars, Turkey is a classified between, it's a, it's a transition country between the East and East. East, of course, it's questionable. Maybe some people think about Turkey classified as a middle income economy uh, in the MENA region, Middle East, North Africa region. It depends on your perspective. But according to general perspective, it's a transition country between East and West. In terms of East, because of the social demographic profile and younger generation and a very patriarch, strong patriarchal structure. In terms of West, because of uh, opening up the global market, integration of the global market and institutional and educational institutional framework. Uh, so it depends on, but uh, very understanding of the, uh, the location of the Turkey is, is a transition country. Because of that, I believe that Turkey is a very interesting case to understand the, how young people navigate the precarious environment. I want to understand the, the, uh, my frame is neoliberalism in Turkey. What I understand neoliberal, neoliberalism and the neoliberal policies, from my understanding, it refers to the political, social, and economic changes taking place over the 30, 30 or 40 years in the contemporary world. And it's uh, affecting, it changes the economic domain. And for example, in the labor market, it creates much more precarious employment and decreases wage security, job security, workplace security. And along this process, labor market is much more fragmented and segmented. And 
true financialization and also financialization process is a part of the neoliberal policies, neoliberalization. And in economic domain, it's great vicious circle on unemployment, underemployment, indebtedness, I had, I, uh, as I said before. In the social political domain, uh, neoliberalism reinforces a kind of subjectivity in the, uh, centered around the discourse of individualism. Neoliberalism celebrated a formation of self. It's supposed to be mobile, flexible, also self-reliant. Because along this process, as I said, the state is no longer as a part of the social provisioning services through the education cut, through the health service and housing cut. And of course, it creates a social emotional burden, material burden, and all social emotional uh, burden outsourced the household to domestic. And of course, it creates it, uh, it creates disproportionately burden. Burden, of course, the women much more affecting these processes. Uh, and what is unique, I think, my understanding in the neoliberalization process in Turkey, we can add this process authoritarianism and the paternalistic state. Of course, I uh, I have to, yeah, I'm terrible this kind of <laughs> technological thing. And the economic domain and social political domain, as I. Uh, try to understand and of course the economic domain social political domain I don't believe that I think there's not such a distinction economic domain is over there and the social political domain is a, like a categorical distinction I think those two domains I think really intersected interrelated embedded in one another so it's just a categorical distinction so what is peculiar in the liberal experience in Turkey vision circle on employment and indebtedness happening differently across the globe, but paternalism and authoritarian repertoire, I think is highly unique right now in Turkey. And considering economic domain, what's going on in Turkey, and, uh, oops, yes. Uh, in 2008, 2009, Turkish, Turkish economy experienced a big debt crisis, and it's created already big structural problem, which is persistent youth unemployment, and right now, 20% of the young people who are out of work, and if we add 29, out of, uh, 29 young people who are not enrolled in education <coughs> institution, it means right now 50% of the young people, they are doing nothing. In addition to persistent unemployment and underemployment, there's another problem we experience in Turkish economy right now. High unemployment rate among young graduates. And in 2008, the unemployment rate for tertiary educated youth has risen almost 40%. It has just happened in the one year, 25%. And the young female graduate makes up 65% of the total unemployed young graduation, young graduate. So unemployment rate is also gendered characteristic. It means that the data shows us the more you are educated, the less likely to employ it right now in the Turkish economic structure. As I said, along with the neoliberal policies, and of course, Turkish neoliberal experience started in the 1980s after uh, coup d'etat, but I argue that over the last decades, under the Justice and Development Party, this process exaggerated and increases social and economic disparity between society, along with uh, the regulation in making inform much more informalized the labor markets, and along with the privatization and the social provisioning, and of course, as I said, increases vicious circle, the uh, indebtedness, and working in the precarious job. 
another interesting thing in Turkey happening, uh, particularly young people enforce the expose the indebtedness. And may, maybe it's very interesting, in Turkey, uh, education, higher education is free. However, many young people, they are university graduates, are exposed to education-related indebtedness, indebtedness reached to 5 million last year. And this vicious circle, as I said before, it's affecting a household differently. It creates much more burden on the women and the young females. Why? Because according to traditional gender roles, women are supposed to taking care of the household roles. But of course, this changes. This changes creates much more burden on the women, and it is also shown in the uh, statistical data. The proportion of the unpaid work per day account 75% for the women and 25% for men. And social political domain. In addition to these changes, economic uh, these economic changes, social political domain, the ruling party, Justice and Development Party, taking a very paternalistic approach. They try to highlight the gender roles a lot. And for example, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he said in 2013, a woman who refuses maternity, gives up housekeeping, is a half person. Another statement, you have a job, a salary, and home. Now it's time for finding wife. We want people of this land to be bountiful. We want you to procreate. First, seek to help up your parents to find a wife. God willing, maybe it's work out. Another statement. Uh, at least uh, they are just suggesting the women to have at least three children. It is necessary, he believed that. And just a few days ago, he said, we must show our young people protecting family glorifies us rather than undermining us. God command us to get married and procreate. Here, we are seeing a very different kind of emerging neoliberal states. As, as, as I said, the state tried to just withdraw in the social provision role, but here in Turkey, state much more intervene the household, particularly female body. It's a part of the neoliberal project, what's going on in Turkey. They are pushing a kind of being female. You have to a good citizen, you have to be good wife, you have to be good daughter, but outside this role, there is no way being female. There's a one particular way of the being female in Turkey right now. And I believe that this is great, inc increase the precariousness of life, particularly for females. In addition to this paternalistic approach, the state also adopts authoritarian repertoire. Uh, and this authoritarianism actually increased after failed coup d'etat happened in the two, uh, 2016. And okay, it's happened and the state declared state of emergency. And state of emergency extended, as I, under, as I remember, to five times. They did, uh, they, along this process, they shut down more than 15 universities and more than a thousand educational institutions. They did many, many changes. And in addition to those changes, the ruling party tried to change, tried to re-regulate labor markets. And they uh, also implement, they deferred the strike six times. And so, uh, and also uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, ruling part, the head of the ruling party clearly state that, we use state of emergency for the business world benefits. Let me ask, do you encounter any trouble, any delays in the business world? Thanks to state of emergency, we immediately intervene in those workplaces that face the threat of strikes. It's very interesting, during this process, 
the ruling party, since uh, 2003, they tried to make some changes in the labor regulation. Uh, it's about the social security benefit for the workers. Since 2003, they couldn't make it because of the strong confrontation came from the uh, unions. But in, the, in this process, they pushed these changes. So they use authoritarian repertoire to re-regulate labor markets. Okay. And why I'm asking this question, lastly, the recent economic and political changes increases precariousness of life and the precarity in the labor market. And it pushed particularly young females. Is a, um, yes, is a weighthood. And in this weighthood is a kind of liminal space. Turkish, ne Turkish neoliberal and paternalistic state perpetually demands of them to be some kind of particular kind of female. So uh, in this research, I'm going to do my fieldwork in the summer. Probably, I hope I'm going to find some responses to this question. How female young with university degree negotiating Turkey's current land, labor landscapes and declining political and social instability? And so what? Why is this research is important to me? And making finding some unfolding everyday uh, repercussion of the economic and political changes, bringing gender and generational lens, I think it's important, it's missing, and understand the blurred boundaries between social reproduction and production, and understand, I think this is one of the most important reasons what am I doing this, visible, invisible forms of solidarity and resistance strategies, and going beyond on some statistical data. I show, it actually is maybe contradictory, I show some many data, but those data given, doesn't give me any kind of how people navigate this environment, this precarity. They don't show what's going on behind in the everyday life. So this is my presentation. Thank you for listening to me. Okay, my turn. And uh, after uh, I finish my presentation, uh, I, I noticed there are uh, some friends from Turkey in the room please join us in the panel discussion. Um, like I said uh, very briefly earlier, my research project uh, focus, focuses on investigating the trajectories of a group of Turkish scholars identified as academics for peace uh, who were marginalized and criminalized uh, by the Turkish government because of a peace petition they publicized in January 2016. Uh, the peace petition condemned the military operation in the southeastern part of Turkey, Kurdish cities and towns, also known as Kurdistan, and called for a return uh, to the recently abandoned negotiation talks between the Turkish state and the Kurdish movement on the decades-long Kurdish question in Turkey. Uh, well, over 2,000 uh, scholars signed the petition uh, in two waves. Uh, uh, me, myself, and Janan, my friend, uh, are the two of them. Um, Academics for Peace is an ongoing process, and I seek to take a snapshot uh, in this ongoing process of the petitioners, both in Turkey and in political exile, especially in uh, North American and uh, European exile, in German exile, basically. Um, I don't think I have enough time to read the, the whole uh, petition text, but let me very briefly read the last part to give you an idea. Uh, it starts uh, with, as academics and researchers of this country, we will not be a party to this crime. And it ends with the statement, 
we as academics and researchers working on and or in Turkey declare that we will not be a party to, to this uh, crime by remaining silent and demand an immediate end to the violence perpe <coughs> sorry, perpetrated by the state. We will continue advocacy with political parties, the parliament, and international public opinion until our demands are met. Actually, the liquidation, uh, sorry, uh, the liqu liquidation of uh, academia uh, is known uh, to have started uh, with the imposition of state of emergency decrees in the aftermath of the 2016 failed coup attempt, um, uh, when thousands of academics have been dismissed from universities, deprived of their social rights, like health care and pension funds, civil rights, like the, uh, the right to their passports and travel, and political rights, uh, like the right to fair trial and uh, to stand in election. But the liquidation of academia started earlier than uh, the failed coup attempt um, with, academic, with, the, with, the, with the purge of academics for peace denounced immediately as the fifth column terrorists by the Turkish government, Academics for Peace became the target of a hostile government political campaign uh, aimed uh, at suppressing freedom of expression and political dissent. Uh, many petitioners were dismissed from their posts, academic posts, banned from public service, uh, lost their right to passport, and faced with uh, disciplinary and criminal investigation. Uh, they were targeted, subjected to smears and lynch on social media, threatened and attacked, and faced with investigations and discharges. They made the headlines in streamline, uh, sorry, mainstream media outlets. All these threats and attacks violated their right to life, liberty, and security. And of course, the crackdown uh, on these Turkish scholars uh, also caused many petitioners to be uprooted. Um, physically, uh, socially, and politically displaced and to seek academic posts uh, elsewhere, mainly in Europe and North America. Uh, lawsuits were filed against at least 822 academics and they spent uh, 300 days, 2300 hearings in the courthouses. Currently, academics for peace are being acquitted from all charges on the grounds of the Supreme Court's decision uh, that the peace petition is not an act of terror propaganda, but freedom of expression. After three and a half years, it's been four years now. However, the case of academics for peace is still an ongoing process, and despite the acquittals, the scholars are likely to be faced with many sociopolitical ramifications. According to a recent report by Turkey Human Rights Association, all academics have indicated that they don't feel legally safe in Turkey. 97% of the academics have said they don't feel safe in the country. Although the academics were acquitted, they continue to struggle with employment, settlement, and status in the aftermath. So the problem is ongoing and the effects continue. There is no going back to life the way it was before. And this is the purpose of my research since their legal status has been mitigated. Okay. Uh, qualitative studies on academics for peace are very few. This is not surprising given the sensitivity of anonymous data collection and its presentation. 
In fact, to my knowledge, there are only three qualitative studies uh, on peace academics. One um, conducted on um, conducted in Turkey, and two in Germany. Um, this research project seeks to investigate the trajectories of signatories uh, in two main objectives. A, it investigates how academics for peace have experienced and resisted the mechanisms of sociopolitical pressure operation, operationalized by the Turkish government, Justice and Development Party, the AKP government, and B, it explores how new forms of subjectivities, new ways of, uh, new ways of resistances and mobilizations have emerged in the ongoing process of this case, both in Turkey and in exile. I will mainly use narrative inquiry in my research, which is a sub-area of qualitative research. Uh, narrative inquiry focuses on two different types of narratives, event center and experience center. Uh, I will be using both of them uh, for this traumatic uh, process uh, th throughout the liquidation and the brutal crackdown on the peace academics since 2016. Um, in fact, uh, most academic papers, most academic um, studies uh, focus on academic freedom when talking about uh, academics for peace, petition and process, uh, disconnecting this petition from its uh, political, historical, political and social context. That's why um, I prefer to have a critical theoretical uh, perspective, uh, which mainly says uh, that uh, all social phenom phenomena uh, should be um, analyzed examined and analyzed uh, uh, in their, in their uh, historical, social, and political uh, context, uh, which takes us to the Kurdish question in Turkey, uh, decades-long Kurdish question in Turkey. Um, in my proposal defense, one of the professors uh, who actually wrote uh, his dissertation, PhD dissertation, on the Kurdish question in Turkey, warned me about um, the timeline of Kurdish question in Turkey, because uh, it all started in, in the late Ottoman period uh, and in intensifying when the Turkish Republic was founded in 1923. Then I thought um, about it too, of course, I will, uh, I will write one full chapter on the Kurdish question in Turkey, but how far should I go back? I think I should go back as far as um, the final peace process, which started in 2009 and officially ended in 2015 for several uh, reasons, uh, many factors uh, from both sides, from both uh, the Turkish state and the uh, Kurdish liberation movement site and um, um, I think um, yeah, yeah, thank right, you. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe in the panel discussion we'll have more to say. Okay. So what's going to happen now is they'll start us off in the panel discussion and then if you've got a question you're welcome to pop your hand. This is uh, the fun part, we'll start to engage with one another. And then we'll 
and help yourself to snacks. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe one of you have a question for someone in the panel? For each other? I do have a question, I mean, like for both of you. Uh, one, I mean, in the, it's a very interesting project actually. I think looking at unemployment, youth unemployment, and looking at gender, educated youth yes. unemployment, it's like really narrowing it down, uh -huh. but at the uh -huh. same time it's so crucial, I think, uh -huh. to understand uh, uh -huh. what's going on as which you conceptualize it like neoliberal paternalistic, you know, uh -huh. economy or uh -huh. political economy in uh -huh. Turkish context. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, like categories that you use when you are referring to the, to the specific group you are looking at. Mm -hmm. Are they middle class? Mm -hmm. Are they working class? Or do we need to kind of think of, yeah. like, probably there is a debate on that. Yes. So yeah. can I just yeah, connect it to another question? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so another question is, you know, like maybe in the educated young women, we also have kind of a division, right? So we have AKP supporters. We have relatively more like maybe urban secular mm -hmm. ones. So maybe young women educated are also polarized, you know, like in politics, maybe all clientelistic lines they keep yes. uses. How does it, does it impact the employment patterns? Mm -hmm. uh, and lastly, uh, as you know, mm -hmm. in the case of refugees, they always, they pit a group against, the, against mm -hmm. each other. Now unemployment is on the rise in Turkey mm -hmm. and many men are actually kind of put in a position, we are unemployed because women, you know, like take our <laughs> jobs, kind of, that kind of a, you know, mm -hmm. the division is, I think, uh, mm -hmm. somehow reinforced, right? It is part of the media language, it just kind of, it founds, finds great, greater representation. So when we think of uh, that way, so what do you think uh, is the role of the organized working class to address this issue in mm -hmm. unions and so how can it be maybe challenged? So, oh. so is it like, Yes, and actually, maybe they should think about some kind of the solution uh -huh. because the, considering the very fragmented, very polarized labor market, maybe mm -hmm. unions. Actually, mm -hmm. this the revolutionary, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the union, and they have some kind of the thing, the youth and all them. But there is always, you know, the, in the some kind of Marxist understanding, sometimes neglected the gender understanding. Yeah, yeah. And when I see the unemployment and underemployment, especially sometimes I didn't see some kind of gender. Where is the gender? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, as you said, this this secular uh, Kemalist versus Islamist women discussion highly, really central to in my research. Why? Mm. Because I remember the ban on the veiling in the uh, university education. And maybe I have to mention in Turkey, before uh, 2000s, maybe 2000s, and uh, if a woman just uh, underveiled wearing a turban, they cannot enter university and they cannot work in the public places. But just in the development market change uh, in the early 2000s, but right now we are talking another political uh, yeah, context. Yeah. context. But of course, definitely secular versus Muslim women. Uh, which is very important point in my research we are yeah. totally agree and the clientelistic approach and, the, and maybe we can say along with the neoliberal policies justice and development party did something uh, very successful they are using the social privilege and the labor and class uh, conflict in the society very useful and they introduce some Islamic informal network to re as a replacement That's and they true. use Islam sometimes is a part of okay we are brothers but there's some middle class and the lower class people and working class people and so it's 
yeah. And of course, the fieldwork gives me some responses yeah, sure. to your questions. Thank you. Um, I wonder if I could ask a question actually about one word you used. You, you mentioned a word called transition country. And I found that okay. quite an interesting idea, the idea mm -hmm. of a transition country. Yeah. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm from South Africa, yeah. and I find that South Africa is often called a, a transition country as well. It's seen as the gateway to Africa. And what, okay. does, this, what does this mean? Like, who gets to yes. say you are a transition country? Why? Why, you know, is it Turkey itself defining itself as mm -hmm. a transition country? And then what is the what is the benefit? What is the power potential yeah. of that? Or is it outside parties defining it as a transition country? Mm -hmm. Geopolitically, maybe they call they call themselves the Turkey calls them maybe a transition country. But maybe we have to go back to very foundational principle of the Turkey is the 1933 the Republic founded is the is very uh, the the best we, the the founding uh, figures in the Turkey they believe that oh we should be westernized and but of course is a part of the there is Ottoman Empire before Turkish Republic so is a kind of Turkey is a geographically transition between two places east and west and also maybe temporarily try to between two places is a part of at the same time Middle East if you look at an if you look at the some feminist reading on the Turkey. And some scholars put Turkey as a part of the patriarchal bed, the South African, it covers the Middle East as well. But some people don't believe that. And maybe I can say it's a transition country, both geographically and temporarily. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's hard to put. Sometimes in the, in the geography, is a big discussion, you know, the, what is global north, global north, and this binary salt, the binaries. When we use this frames are we reinforcing the developed and underdeveloped region kind of the discourses so the turkey is really really interesting place to start to discuss the the center this binary is the global north what is global north what is global south and can we when we use the global north south are we replacing are we using the developmental approach which approach we are using so it's gonna be very yeah, so it's very questionable maybe in addition to what you rightfully said, uh, we can say Turkey is now one of the countries which is called G20. Right? Yes. Yeah. So they kind mm -hmm. of, as you said, middle income countries. So, middle income. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's highly, you know, like emphasized in the rhetoric that the mm -hmm. president uses, you know, like, oh, mm -hmm. we, are in, we are flourishing, our economy is growing, growing. we are yeah, now, mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, not this, in the same league that we used to be. So yeah, there is the a kind of, a, that's right, there's a projection which kind of thinks Turkey is transitioning uh, from a developing country yes. mm -hmm. into a developed one. Mm -hmm. Maybe in South Africa you might... And of course, it comes with a regional hegemonic drive, right? Mm -hmm. So we are the leader of the region. So that's why we have a greater say in the geopolitics yeah. mm -hmm. of the region. So this is th these yes. are probably mm -hmm. economic, mm -hmm. political. political. Yeah. I think you have a question. I thought I would not ask it, but I'll ask you. So I am wondering, in terms of uh, the labor, <coughs> Whether among the general population, I'm not talking about refugees, I'm talking about Turkish. Yes. Whether we have these uh, you know, differences, like even those countries, even developed countries, they have that economic disparities and whatever. Whether in um, Turkey you have something like that. And if there is, how would you convince somebody that it is more important to study or talk about the refugees mm -hmm. rather than even Turkish themselves? Who are in the lower class? Exactly. 
that's a that's a really good question because you know we one might argue that it, it the segmentation of labor doesn't start actually with the foreigners you know mm -hmm. particularly maybe in the not only in developing countries even in developed countries so we have actually a hierarchical organization of the workspace where we have like you know uh, workers with relatively stable jobs you know they were not dismissed from public sector or still you know like working in the industrial areas which did not get closed down and we also have growing informal flexible you know like sectors so refugees only complicate or make this situation yeah more complicated and it adds the politics of rationalization I think into this segmentation issue is it easy to talk to the Turkish you know uh, uh, workers who are already at the down, you know, like of the scale that you are describing about refugees, no, it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. And according to the labor market research, uh, actually the most affected ones uh, by the influx of the refugees are <coughs> not those who have permanent jobs, actually. Mm -hmm. Those who have temporary, uh, low-income jobs are the ones relatively, you know, like displaced and uh, uh, displaced by the refugee influx. But the problem is, you know, yes, it is difficult to discuss, but what is the alternative? Otherwise, you know, you have to go with the commonsensical, uh, racial, and anti-refugee politics that is growing within the working class. Either you will let it go, you know, or you will try to think of, you know, strategies to challenge it. And luckily, I think, whatever we are talking about, there is an, also an urge to address that kind of division. Like I come from Ankara, which is, is in Istanbul, we have now 750,000 refugees. In Ankara, the, small, the number is much smaller, but in the places where this cheap labor is you know, uh, employed, we see both division, but both contestation. Mm -hmm. you know? So that's why I say intra-class and inter-class you know, politics are pulling the working class into different directions. It's very difficult task, and it's not easy, of course, to to bring different segments in the working class together. And uh, but it is a task, you know, that the unions who relatively represent relatively more comfortable segments of the working class to include the rest. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are the strategies that I will observe. What, and hopefully, you know, like I will find certain, you know, uh, drives to a positive outcome. So, so. Yes, yeah. yeah, I want to this as you as you said. I will look at the refugees and do interviews, but I will also look at the host population. I mean, like Turkish working class. I am planning to do interviews. I will do something called political ethnography. I am planning to go to the neighborhoods where we have this informal, you know, like sectors. I want to observe, you know, the neighborhoods, the places they are work closely, and I want to do some focus group work with the host workers, actually, rather than refugees. So what is their response? What do they think? And the third point that I'm going to look at is the trade unions. So how is the organized segments look at the issue in general, and do they have any strategies, you know, mm -hmm. like how are they mm -hmm. uh, contesting the anti-refugee sentiment mm -hmm. and in their ranks, whether they are doing anything or not. So, uh, in addition to, of course, document analysis, the policies that the Turkey has, you know, etc. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for such a great and wonderful uh, presentation. Like, I've been enlightened as to what is happening today. But then my question goes to the lab. 
conditions to promote health interventions within the labor market. I wanted to find out, has or have your research found the, the role of um, international organizations like the World Bank promoting sort of like its influence in the Turkish government's perspective yes. as to what an ideal labor economy mm -hmm. is? And are you capturing that within your your research but the other thing I was just reading a book that looks at Africa's place in the global mm -hmm. in the global uh, economic system and it talks about scientific capitalism whereby the idea of capital or the idea of uh, economic growth mm -hmm. is dissociated from moral obligations. So mm -hmm. the government or the institution is expected to promote certain uh, economic interventions increase development, mm -hmm. whatever the development mm -hmm. means, without having or without bearing the implications of those policies on the everyday life of the people, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at the structural adjustment uh, program that went on in Africa, it was um, cut down on subsidies, um, mm -hmm. do this, do that, do that, your economy will grow, but then the implications of those mm -hmm. policies were not considered within these capitalist or scientific capitalism mm -hmm. that the book classifies. So is that the same form of policies that the Turkish government is promoting within this uh, labor market reforms? Are these sort of like mm -hmm. ideologies of restricting or reducing mm -hmm. government's mm -hmm. obligations or government responsibilities without uh, bearing the moral mm -hmm. implications of the mm -hmm. side, like the side effects of Mm -hmm. And maybe I can say from the scientific and uh, when I thinking the moral obligation, for example, I, it reminds me just on the ruling part, the ruling, the head of the ruling party, he used some kind of the, we try to create the labor as a kind of workers docile and mobile and can be adaptable in a kind of condition. Actually, they are trying to maybe I can say since 2002 they came to power, they try to change. They re-regulate the labor market, create it is a Turkish labor market is a cheap labor force, particularly not particularly the European, particularly the Middle East region. And they try to kind of the, some make some changes, the, the legal regulation through legal uh, regulation, particularly in the labor market. They try to then he uses highlighted this argument. We try to produce a kind of worker who could be docile. So maybe is a kind of create a, some moral obligation. Just another thing I can say, why am I trying to understand that paternalism is a part of this neoliberal project? Why? Because it's a, also part of the, you are trying to kind of be a good citizen, good uh, women, good daughter, as a part of the productive agent within the society. It's also part of the neoliberal project. Because the state tries to give all in responsibility to individual. And thinking about the precarity, and the employers always just uh, give and make some covers, and they all give the responsibility to the workers. I think the state here, maybe in Turkey, maybe the other context, state still tries to use this precarity as a part of the outsourcing, transferring all responsibility to citizen. I think maybe in Turkey, I can say there's a part of the moral obligation is using as a part of the producing active workers, active citizens is a part of maybe scientific project. And uh, another thing I'm going to, in my uh, research, as a, as a part of my research, I'm going to do some archive and some international labor organization, World Bank report. And um, when uh, Justice and Development Party came to power, they 
uh, change 2003, I guess, the, one of the important labor regulations they started, they harmonized the European Union. They adopted European Union labor policies, and this uh, specific labor regulation particularly tries to aim to flexibilize labor market. And the, in 2003, maybe I am wrong, 2003, this is the one of the important labor regulations. 2005, the, I guess. Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah. And they tried to flexibilize, and also the fixed work scheme and the just contract-based employment the first time introduced in the in this labor regulation so i cannot say just say that it's something happened in turkey is also macro scale something going on and the global international global labor force is also changing and it's multi-scale process from my understanding i hope yeah okay Yes. Right. Yes. So I know, like, it's too early because we have to collect your. Yes. Data. This summer, I'm gonna do. <laughs> like in your mind, do you, could you identify some like strategies that we pursue? Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, definitely, it's gonna be. Uh, I want to look at maybe social media platform and what kind of platform they are come together. For example, I planning to make some interview at there was an organization and they are uh, those organ this organization particularly the young females they come together and they are working in the technology sector and they are working for example some cafe, some places, some co-worker spaces. They create their spaces. So it's really informal and maybe I can go them and I can see and how they navigate this precarious environment and they come together uh, on Saturdays, and they said, we are, okay, not working in the workplace, but we are create our workplaces. So actually, they are decentering a traditional sense of workplaces. So I, uh, there are some or, some informal organization. I can I shouldn't call organization, but they is a kind of organization, but informally, they are come together. So, and maybe some solidarity network. What kind of um, solidarity network they are creating invisibly? Because when we're thinking it is, there are some organized unions, there is, but how people in their everyday life, their mothers maybe, their uh, sisters maybe, elders, so how, how sisterhood is working there? And how sisterhood is very contested in this context? Because I don't want to just look at the gender. I want to also look at the class issue mm -hmm. because it's, when we consider the class and gender together, it's turning to be really contested. So, and uh, this kind of maybe neighborhood uh, places, the communities, how they come together and how they share their social emotional burden arise from the precarity and the precariousness of life. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mostly, I'm interested in the invisible. Part of because the, you know the women labor is always always invisible and precarious. So uh, if I just uh, follow this invisibility, definitely it's going to give me some kind of this uh, responses to my big research question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, like I, I see some things that you're doing here, so I get it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And then you are getting 
So uh, how are you as researchers tracing your object? Is it in your, is it as you said you might look at archives, but if you leave archives behind, or, mm -hmm. like is there a particular mass media campaign or is it something mm -hmm. you follow in an author? Or, um, I'm, I'm interested in what will become your main primary material. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can start. Yeah, my my main um, material will be uh, semi-structured interviews with the scholars. Uh, I will start uh, with the ones in exile uh, in Canada, in Toronto, Montreal, and uh, in Halifax too, <laughs> and um, in the United States, New York. Basically, and in uh, in Ger I, I know it it sounds very ambitious, but you know, uh, and I will travel to Berlin to uh, talk to some other scholars too, and later in summer I will be in Ankara, uh, my hometown, to talk with my uh, colleagues there. Um, but uh, I will also look at their uh, court testimonies, and uh, their autobiographies if there are any and I will ask them to write some pieces actually they're in their everyday life you know photographs as well but the primary one primary material would definitely be the semi uh, semi structured interviews yeah. and I think Janet you said that you're going to be going to millions and doing observations yeah, maybe non-unionized sectors as well, you know, I want to go to, because there are organizations working with refugees, right? So maybe through their help also, I want to uh, kind of create focus groups, long, you know, like maybe interviews, you know, like with them, so that I can access uh, their understanding of the situation. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, my main, uh, there's a, some, uh, in my research, the first thing I'm going to do, uh, li uh, collecting life history narratives. And maybe you call in that interview, maybe life history interviews. I'm planning to make some life hi history interviews to around 30 women, young females. And they are particularly graduated after 2013, because the 2013, I believe, there was a big a uh, momentous moment in Turkey is the Geza uprising happened and the mostly young people there. And so 2000, after 2013, some kind of authoritarian regime introduced in this neoliberal process. So after 2013, I, uh, after, uh, a young female graduated after 2013 probably is going to be my interview or research participant. And actually positionality is really important because I claiming myself, oh, I'm doing some feminist research, but what is my positionality is very interesting. Uh, before I came here, uh, I work, uh, I had a four and five year work experience and mostly I work in very precarious job. Informally, I work as a freelance translator, I work as a private tutor, I work as a sales assistant, I did sometimes four or three jobs at the same time and mostly and I can feel this economic insecurity and maybe all of us maybe feel the uh, economic insecurity. But of course I'm working and I'm just right now living in Canada and I'm working with Queen's University, it's a global north university. Obviously this kind of differences create some um, power relations between my research participants, what is research and the, as a researcher position. And another thing, I came here 2017 and after 2017 many things changed in Turkey. 
and offices are like it. I'm gonna see. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm gonna maybe discover and explore. I, I don't want to use explore. Discover those invisible strategies together as a part of like a participatory observation. But of course, you know the participation. What does it mean? Is there are so many discussion on them? So Thank you. I could follow this idea of similarity between the three of you. It's clear that each of you take uh, issue with neoliberalism. Right? That seems to be yeah. central to all of your your um, presentations, and that in a variety of ways it, it leads to um, injustice or precarity. Maybe neoliberal authoritarianism. So, so what what is that? Um, mm -hmm. Maybe we can spend a little bit of time talking about what is. Uh, what is neoliberalism? <laughs> Just the biggest word ever. But maybe getting a bit more into some conceptual ideas of when you say neoliberal authoritarian states, and I know you gave us something of a definition, mm -hmm. but is it the same thing everywhere? Mm. Because, you know, you speak about refugees, mm -hmm. I immediately think of New York City, and I think about how refugees are a very distinct part of the US, and that refugee precarity has been a distinct part of history. Uh, you've seen slaughterhouses change, uh, workforces again, the, the makeup seems to just shift from precarious worker to precarious worker. The female dynam dynamics in terms of work and uh, reproductive tensions, these have happened. But there's something new in this moment right now that mm -hmm. maybe wasn't the case in the 1950s. So what is what is it that's distinct here when we, when we think about neoliberalism in Turkey? Because we don't know Turkey, right? Like, I don't know mm -hmm. anything about Turkey. I've never been to Turkey, so maybe try to also yeah. give us some context. What are we, right. what are we talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is not very easy to answer your question. <laughs> no, yeah. not at all. But I can, you know, like just That's why we're looking at her. <laughs> so. Uh, Hilal very briefly, you know, like said that the, maybe the neoliberalization in Turkey of Turkish economy started with the 1980 coup, cool. and it was like Reagan, Thatcher, and we had a prime minister called Turgut Özal. You know, so we we saw privatization attempts, we saw free trade, removal of tariffs. You know, we saw a crackdown on trade unions, workers, and the left in general in 2018, and it went for a long time. But what is this? What distinguishes maybe this period from the previous decades? If you ask me, I would say uh, when the Turkish capital, you know, like was growing, since capitalists are always competing against each other, they are divided. They are kind of brothers with knives against each other, right? So we had historically strong Istanbul-based bourgeoisie ruling classes, but we also had, which is called, you know, like Anatolian bourgeoisie. So since 2002, the party in the government represent the interests of kind of a competing section of the bourgeoisie in economy as well. They came to power as representatives of quote-unquote green bourgeoisie in Turkey, Islamic bourgeoisie, which were smaller in scale compared to Istanbul-based. But since they were the majoritarian party, getting almost 40%, 50% of the voters, they struck a deal with the traditional bourgeoisie, right? So now they kind of represent the conflicting interest of those two groups well, and that group grieve immensely, crony capitalists. Lots of, you know, like uh, deals, risk gained by the state, you know, like or government intervention. However, good days, are over now. I mean, like Turkish lira is depreciating, the economy is going worse, growth figures are going down, because in the developing circle of the world economy, those good days are now left behind. 
which means neoliberalism cannot uh, anymore keep going with consent production, right? I mean, so their hegemony or domination is cracked at the moment, which means they have to be more authoritarian in their measures. Mm -hmm. They have to use ideological tools further, family, womanhood, their reproductive role, procreation, populism. Yeah, so, yeah, so or crack on intellect, anti-intellectualism. So they are getting close to Trump, getting close to Modi. I mean, their agenda is becoming more and more authoritarian in this sense. So I would say uh, they started with, you know, like, like their counterparts, uh, just with great aspirations, creating a compromise between all classes. We are the voice of the people, voice of the middle class, voice of the bourgeoisie, and now they are having difficulty making this consensus go on. So it's more authoritarian. Is it peculiar to Turkey? I don't think so. So I think the central politics everywhere, neoliberal centralism is in crisis globally, even in Canada, I would say. You know, like here we see similar tendencies. Yeah. Question. Uh, that's true. Yeah. And I, I think, and you think we should always be a little bit more. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 it's a no, good question. No. Who's going to be our audience? Yeah. Think about the audience. Okay. Yes, so, thank you. So, yeah. are there any, I think we can take two more, two more questions and then there'll be a spot of time for you and then we'll snacks. Must be global academia, of course, especially in my case. Uh, in my friends' cases too, uh, because I mean, um, uh, let me look at the statistics. I mean, political conflicts around the world are producing thousands of uprooted, displaced academics, especially from the Middle East. I mean, uh, uh, from Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. Basically, recently, many academics from Turkey have become politically exiled uh, to the demise uh, of the liberal plural pluralist consensus and the rise of authoritarianism in their home country. Scholars at risk uh, keep the records, of course, and the international network of institutions that seeks to promote academic freedom and protect scholars. Uh, there has been an increase of 800% in the demand uh, for their services by Turkish academics, and this is over 2,000% uh, for Iraqi and for Syrian uh, academics. Um, that's how it is. So, I mean, in my case, it's the global academia. And, uh, ex ex yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look what what Trump is doing to the, uh, to uh, to academics and researchers, scientists on uh, global warming. Look uh, what the um, uh, uh, British government is doing to, to the academic to the academics and scientists, social scientists basically, having a say about uh, Brexit. Uh, blah, 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 the, this can continue. Okay, it's not new. I mean, uh, this uh, right-wing pluralism is not nothing new, but it is further and further, uh, more and more anti-intellectual, and we see it in, in, in the global north too now, that's why. Okay, sorry.
And there, uh, there was an article about the, maybe written by Jeffrey, I, I forget name. And in this article, they are talking about global north turned into global south. So they are south warding. They are using this kind of thing. Actually, it's very interesting. We are talking about the precarity and precarity, especially particularly in the discussion on the precarity and the precariousness. Mostly, and it started particularly in this world, global north, after 2008. But the, this uh, having a stable job is very, very a privileged thing in the world. And the many parts of the world, maybe in the in the Turkey, informal economy is like a real economy. It's not a deviant part of the capitalism. So, yes, yeah, yeah. So maybe uh, we should think about sometimes I'm maybe because of I'm doing geography thinking decentering this global north south what does it mean and maybe we should use with quotation but what at the end of the day we are using global north and south thank you Thanks for the question. Uh, unfortunately, we do not have like solid data about it. Yeah, but uh, restricted, you know, like uh, field research looking at the impact of refugee influx shows that yes, informal workers at the bottom are influenced. But I don't think it's a mass displacement. So, uh, which means maybe informal economy is growing, for example, Turkish textile export rates are going up, which means there are more and more textile sweatshops are opening, which, which uh, employ child laborers, you know, cheap Syrian laborers, not necessarily replacing existing, you know, like uh, maybe host workers altogether. So there is, an, I think, a degree of expansion and a degree of displacement. But since it is an, it is informal sector, I think the numbers are not uh, solid there. So I hope when doing this political ethnography, you know, like I will have a better sense of what's going uh, on there. And in some sectors like agriculture, uh, Turkey also is a country where internally displaced people are a lot. Like Kurdish people, because of the conflict with the Turkish state and all like the four decade long war, they migrated to uh, cities towards the west, right? And m many of them are seasonal agricultural workers. 
they say with the Syrian refugee influx, there is a shift from the Kurdish uh, seasonal worker employment to Syrian refugee employment. So in agricultural sector, there is a replacement. But they say it also changed the status of the Kurdish seasonal workers. Mm -hmm. Some of them become hierarchically, you know, like upward. So uh, class composition changes, not in a static way, I think. When they are come, they are sometimes displaced. They are sometimes pushed forward. So. It is something to be uh, explored, uh, I believe. Yeah, I wish I could answer your question with, like, with greater clarity. And it was interesting, I was working an uh, international labor organization project about the Syrian refugees, and they are talking about the child labor. Yeah. And uh, maybe, you know, the waste picking and recycling sector in Turkey informally regulated, mm -hmm. and mostly children are working waste picking, re recycling sector, and they are using this kind of yeah, car like, um, and Turkish, trolley, yeah, like. and the Turkish child worker outsource the Syrian child refugees, and so is a kind of it's very interesting. Yes, what? it's very interesting. They are outsourcing, yeah. and for a Turkish kid, just the higher three or maybe four Syrian refugee to be worked employed. So yeah. it's very interesting dynamic going on there. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like if you would imagine a hierarchy. Yeah. Which Yeah, and I think in case of Gaia's project, uh, we also see, you also talked about it, but it is, I think, really heartbreaking, you know, in some instances. Like, really, imagine professors here, like, earning three-digit, you know, like, salaries with lots of, you know, status and recognition, and you are dismissed and displaced, are exiled to another country, you don't have a permanent job, you are kind of in the mercy of certain international scholarships which give you temporary. one year, you know, temporary... Prisoners, families are uh, disintegrated, Broken. like they children are left there sometimes. So precarity, I think, as, as you said, neoliberalism combines our projects and precarity as well. And interestingly, in informal sector, very low income jobs, yeah. in educated young women and, and academics. Yeah, it's like a hierarchical. something yes. I think. transnational nature. Yes. Global politics. Yeah. Exactly. Dostlar dağılır dört bir yana Kendi yollarına Ve sen ben Değirmenlere karşı Bile bile Birer yetik savaşçı Akarız Dereler gibi Denizlere Belki de
big thank you to today's guest as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC with a special thanks to the station manager Diana Janssen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafiki Zolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. Oh,